I'll tell you what, y'all sound beautiful. That's the spirit of God at work through your voices. I was sitting in the back in the dark, as Glenn mentioned, or Coach Glenn, I, I should call him now, mentioned. Um, I have a problem with my eye, and it's actually not a problem with my eye, it's with my eyelid. It doesn't work right, and it causes problems with my eye. And there are probably 50 million sermon analogies about vision and whatnot that could go with that. But yeah, I think back to the course of this year, I think we can agree um, that sometimes it's just good to look back. Sometimes you can get stuck in the past and think we're there. But I would say it's been for me personally, and I would say for Summit Church and the leaders of Summit Church, a difficult year. It's a really difficult year. I remember, it's probably March, Todd saying, hey, everybody have a, have a sermon in your back pocket. Um, and, and the good thing about thinking back on that is that we thought, based on all this information that we we're getting at the time, that the reason for having that sermon in our back pocket might be much more grave than it is presently. But we still have sermons in our back pockets. The sermon I have uh, to preach this morning wasn't in my back pocket. Um, so I am woefully underprepared. Um, and yet, probably the most confident I ever have been standing before Summit Church that God has the right message for you this morning from his word. I don't say that in a position of arrogance. I'm just, I'm just confident of that. Sorry, sorry, not sorry. That's where God has me. I look back at my life. There's been hard things. There's been blessings. But when you look back, you realize that all the, the hard things that God has put you through turn out to be good things. You don't understand them in the midst. When I woke up this morning and my eye felt like someone had put a railroad spike through it, I'm like, God, what are you doing to me? Why would you do this to me? And yet... I don't understand why or logically why this morning would be any different than the rest of my life when God has shown himself to be faithful. So I'm not sweating it. So this morning I want to picture yourself, like you picture yourself as something and I'm going to tell you what to picture yourself as. And I want you to picture yourself basically as an evangelist and as a church planter. All right? So get in that mindset. Now there's different kinds of evangelists and church planters, but put your brain into that you're you're doing that. So basically, you've spent, spent years traveling around the world, um, or the world as you know it, your space in the world. And you stop in cities and communities, and you're really building relationships fo focused on the gospel. So you go to one place for maybe six months. You go to one place for 18 months. Maybe up to three years, you're going to a place, building relationships. There's some debating with people in regards to the truth of God's word. But you're really trying to get churches started. You're preaching the gospel and you're equipping people. And then you're turning those churches over, essentially. You're entrusting those churches to elders, faithful men, who in turn can also teach and lead those churches. And they, they go on and do the same thing that you've done then. It's this pretty cool pattern that God has established for building the church. And parts of that evangelism, parts of that church planning are really rewarding. Parts are also very hard. It can be lonely. And in some places, the good news that you are confident about, other people don't view as very good. You get threatened, right? 
get chased off by people who don't know the truth about things. But then also there's some friendly fire too. But in other places, you plant seeds, the truth of God's word, and it, it like starts growing right away. And it's amazing. But then later, as you travel to other places, you hear through um, letters and, and messengers that things in that church that seem to grow up really fast aren't going as great as um, it seemed at first. And this is really the example of the church in Corinth that the apostles started. So our passage this, this morning is from 2 Corinthians 13, the very end of it. We know the apostle Paul was one of the original church planters. We have two letters in scripture that he wrote. There's actually more letters. We, we know of one more letter that he, that he wrote. We don't have it. We only know about it because he referenced it himself. And then there's probably another one as well based on how he writes. So there was a lot of communication between the Apostle Paul, the church planter, and the, this church that he started in Corinth. And Paul's letters are filled mostly with correction, mostly with correction for that church or teaching them things about the way they were thinking or what they were doing was essentially wrong. It needed to be fixed. But there was also a lot of emotion in Paul's letters to Corinth. And you really see this genuine love that Paul had for really a messed up people, stubborn people. And they never really got the memo that the church was supposed to be this holy place. So these days, if we think about all our churches, no one would go to the church in Corinth because it was so screwed up. Uh, they were divided people. They organized themselves around the leaders that they liked as opposed to um, the common purpose that they had in Christ and in the gospel and making disciples. They were an immature people, and that really flowed out into how they lived. There was pride. There was this um, culture in the, in the city of Corinth that was a kind of a hyper-sexualized culture. And the church was very tolerant of that, sometimes even partaking in it in ways beyond even the, that the culture itself was awful in. They were inconsiderate of each other. They used worship and even communion to kind of assert cultural status instead of honoring and remembering Jesus. And they were rebellious and hard-hearted, just like God's people in the Old Testament. So, you know, we're getting started here, and it's like, hey, great encouraging message, Bjorn, to get started with about how messed up these people were. And really, we could go on. If you, if you read through 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, we could go on about how messed up they were. That could be like a month of sermons about the different ways that Paul was correcting, reproving, and rebuking the church. Corinth and the letters that Paul wrote to it just proved that the church is imperfect and a messy place. It's filled with imperfect people. The only thing perfect about the church is the one who called the people together out of darkness, who died for them on the cross, and then was resurrected and ascended to the right hand of God the Father. So Jesus, he's the perfect one in the church. We are not so but then this cool thing happened. If you read through First and Second Corinthians, this cool thing happened because you kind of notice a pattern, and that's this. Paul wrote and corrected them, and the scriptures were read and taught, and the Spirit of God worked, and the people in Corinth grew. They were being transformed by the power of God, and that's how it's supposed to be. So by the time we get to the end of the, the passage uh, where we're going to be today, we still see an imperfect church, 
Even in that last part of the letter he wrote in 2 Corinthians 13, there's corrections. But we also see a church that's being transformed. And that's pretty awesome. So we call the end of a letter uh, the benediction. Just a blessing, a final blessing. But these blessings that Paul is giving to the church are also kind of like his bottom line instructions in terms of the church at Corinth. What does God want the church to do? What does God want the church to be? Who does God want the church to be? Who does God want the church to be like? We could spend a lot of time talking about these kinds of questions. There's cool ideas and strategies and whatnot to really enough to choke, I don't know, a blue whale. It takes a lot to choke a blue whale. But Paul's final blessing gives us some clearer direction His final blessing shows us that God wants to take his church, his body, in a different direction than the world takes its organizations and its assemblies. And that's exciting. So 2 Corinthians chapter 13, the very end of Paul's letter. We're going to start in verse 11. He writes this, finally, so closing, hey, here's, here's the deal. Here's the real deal, the final instructions. Finally, brothers, hey, brothers and sisters, we're a family in this together. So finally, final instructions, brothers and sisters, God's family, rejoice. What that means is delight in God together because he has shown you grace. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Rejoicing is delighting in God together because God has shown us grace. This word rejoice there is interesting because it was a multi-purpose word. You could use it as a greeting You could use it as a uh, whatever it is when you say goodbye. So it's a hello word. It's a goodbye word. And maybe even the the translation you're looking at, I I think it's the King James for like the three of you left in our congregation that still use that. Or the new King James version. It even says that. It says farewell instead of rejoice. But the, the idea here is the idea of rejoicing. So it's not about hello or goodbye. It's about rejoicing. It is about joy. And when you look at that word rejoice, you should think of some things. You should think of God's grace. God's grace. Rejoice in God's grace. And then think of the the joy that there is in who God is and what God has done. And in that rejoice. So in Paul's, we call it Paul's first letter. It's his second letter that he wrote to Corinth. He wrote this in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. So be encouraged this morning, Summit. You, you can rejoice at this. You can be rejoiced at what you read in the word of God because love rejoices with the truth. It's in Luke. I can't remember if it's in Matthew or Mark. There's an account of Jesus sending out 72 disciples. So he had these Three disciples who were like his main guys, and then 12 disciples that we know about. And then there were more disciples, 72 disciples, and he sent out. And they, they were basically starting to, to preach the gospel, that the kingdom of God was there. And they came back, and they were like, Jesus, you would not believe what just happened. We had authority over demons. We were able to heal people. Like, how in the, in the world did this happen? And the Lord responds to the 72 who are just like, if our room right here now, like the, I know you guys are listening and you're paying good attention, but the, the, the energy level right now in the room is like a 
four out of 10. Like, we'll get there. But these people right now, in terms of their confidence in who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing, was like a 300 out of 10. They were like, you would not believe what we just did, Jesus. And he says, behold, which is always like a, hey, listen up type of word. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions. Basically, you're going to do things and you will not get hurt, even though it seems like you should get hurt doing those things. I've given you authority over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. And then the Lord Jesus says this, nevertheless, nevertheless, even considering that awesome authority and power that you have in me, don't rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So when we think about rejoicing, rejoice in this, you can rejoice that God has saved you in Jesus Christ. Charles was supposed to preach from James 1 this morning. We're going to go through the book of James. Not sure when we'll get started with that, but we will at some point in the next few weeks. Verse 2 in James chapter 1, it's written, Count it all joy, my brothers, joy, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith, faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, So we know we can rejoice at what God's word says. We can rejoice that God's word says that Jesus, by his work on the cross, has saved us. We can also rejoice that Jesus is changing us. Jesus is transforming our hearts and our lives. And it seems like he does it most effectively and most powerfully through hard and challenging things. When I think of the history of the church, Maybe we've drifted away from this proper idea of lamentation or dealing with sorrow and hard things together. We have to learn how to get back to that, to trust who God is and recognize that when sad and hard things happen, that he hasn't left us and that we can cry out to him and even complain to him. That's what a lament is. To minister effectively in our broken world, we need to have a proper understanding and theology of sorrow. And difficulty. But I want you to know this morning, based on what the Word of God says, that joy and trials are not opposite things. So, in every circumstances we face, the ones that we would call good or the ones that we feel are bad, we're to be people who rejoice. And then we're to do this aim for restoration. Look at that in verse 11 aim for restoration. And this idea is to build up others. Because God has built you up. Build up others because God has built you up. Two ideas in this. The word there, aim for restoration. The the word restoration is really this idea of mending or fixing. So you see it in the gospel narratives when the fishermen um, that were disciples of Jesus were fixing their nets. They were mending their nets. It's the same word there. And it's the idea of being put back together or something breaks and you fix it. When you think about fishing, like we do a lot of fishing with, uh, you know, a pole and a line, but we don't fish often with nets. At least I don't see that. I think it's even illegal to do that in most places. But when they were fishing in the Bible, they would throw the net in the water. Sometimes it would drag on the bottom. Sometimes you get a really good fish. But it, because of its use, the net got damaged along the way and required repair. I think we need to remember that 
that we should aim for restoration in our relationships in the church, in our relationships with the Lord, in our relationships with people outside the church. There is this constant restoration that's required that just happens because life happens. We have to mend things. We have to put things back together. It doesn't mean that everything is a disaster because it requires mending. Think about the fishermen fishing. The reason that the nets were ripped was because things were going all right and how they were supposed to go. And yet it still required mending and putting things back together. So aim for restoration. Aim to, in your relationships, build things up and restore them. Fix things and put them back together. And I also think of our spiritual growth pillar at Summit. And then I think of my wife, Heather. So if you compare Heather to me, it's quite obvious which person is employed in the fitness industry. Um, And I am not employed in the fitness industry. Um, But Heather has a a long history. Uh, She has a kinesiology degree um, in the, the study of human movement and motion. And God has always put on her this idea of like, how science and the human body um, like come together and accomplish things. And it's pretty cool. And there's something that happens when you, when you start studying. You learn all these cool things about the human body. So anyone here lift weights? Um, I don't. Um, but if you lift weights, um, you know, well, I hope you know, but Heather could tell you if you were curious, that what happens actually is when you lift up something that's heavier than you can manage, it's actually tearing your muscles in small ways. That's what's happening. So people talk about lactic acid and and things like that. That's happening in your muscles. But the reason it hurts if you walk up a dune or you lift weights or you run beyond what you're used to is because your muscles in small micro tears have been torn. What happens then when you sleep and, and eat food like protein is that your body then builds those muscles up in ways that are stronger than they were before. Now, it doesn't happen instantly. It's not like Lou Ferrigno and Incredible Hulk where you instantly become huge and ripped and have a 12 pack right here. But what happens is, over time, your muscles get stronger and stronger and stronger. And that happens because it's being torn down and then built up. And I wanted to use this example this morning so that we together would think of a body, what that's like. Why does it hurt? Well, because it hurts. But what's happening is that we're getting stronger together by the things that we endure together. So when you think about what God is doing in your life, and the hurts that you've endured, and how you've been built up through those because of the graciousness of God, then take that building up that God has done in your life and use it in terms of how you interact with others. Build up others because God has built you up. Yes, there's been pain in that, but that's how it's supposed to be. And it's been effective that you can be stronger than to build up and serve others. So we should do that. Also, verse 11, comfort one another. Comfort one another. Come alongside one another. That's what it says in verse 11, basically. And from this, we know that we're to encourage others because God has encouraged you. I want to think, you to think right now, and I, I hope this isn't discouraging to you. I hope you'll see the, the purpose in it. I want you to think of some of the hardest things that God has put you through in your life. Think about it. One for me, uh, some significant health issues that then I realized genetically I passed on to my youngest son, Brock. Just a hard thing. It involved cancer. It involved removal of uh, body parts that I would rather have, but I'm glad I don't have them anymore because they had cancer in them. And then think back on those trials. Maybe it was a relationship. Maybe it was a sickness. 
Maybe it was a time where you just had no money for an extended period of time. Whatever that trial was, think back and and ask yourself, did God ever leave me through that trial? If you have your Bible, flip back to 2 Corinthians 1, the start of the, the, start of the chapter. I'm going to read it, but maybe you're better if you just read things. Paul writes this to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians 1, 3. Blessed be, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with, with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Look again there uh, in verse 4. God comforts us in all our affliction. And then there's a so that, which is a statement of purpose. Why, why do we have affliction in our lives and why does God then comfort us? He comforts us so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with that same comfort that he gave us. We're to comfort one another. We're to encourage one another with words and deeds because God has comforted and encouraged us in the midst of our own afflictions. And it ends up being something where we together are accomplishing great things. Yes, it is hard to face an affliction. But the afflictions that I've faced and that you have faced, those are not without purpose, that then you may use those to encourage and bless other people and maybe to bring them into relationship with Jesus Christ by the words that you would have. So encourage one another because God has encouraged you. Pressing on in verse 11, what does it say? Agree with one another. Agree with one another. And this is the idea of being like-minded because God has given us unifying truth and purpose. I'm smiling because I, I, don't, I don't know that agree would be a great word for the past year. In the world, in our country, in our state, in our county, in our church, What does that mean to, to agree? Do we all have to think the exact same way? Do we have to agree on everything? I don't think that's what Paul's intention would be in writing this to the church in Corinth. He's saying, have the same attitude among yourselves. You see that in other places. He wrote that to the church in Philippi too. Have this mind or have this attitude, have this mindset among you, which is also yours in Christ Jesus. Have the same patterns of thinking. Think about things in the same way. And the question that I have is just, how in the world does this happen? Like anytime you have more than one person in a room, there's going to come to be a point where there's disagreement about things. How can you agree with one another, given that it's a command given in Scripture? And I kind of broke it down into two things as I thought about it. And one is that God has given us the most important matters that we must agree on. There's things that we must agree on. Who God is and what God has done is a good way to summarize those things. And then God has also given us this awesome unifying purpose that we must accomplish together. The world's solution for disagreement is basically to battle over sides. 
Maybe the goal starts with this. First, you just try to win people over with your personality, maybe, or, or reason, logic, um, profit, a benefit that you could bring to someone to win them over to your side. And then if that doesn't work or that's not fast enough or expedient, the way that the world does it then is basically to try to bring the other side under subjection to you. Basically, you must agree with me in order for us to accomplish what we need to accomplish. And then the winner, basically, of that battle to put people under subjection decides, you know, what what history says. But God has a different plan in terms of dealing with disagreement. And it's there is something greater than our many sides, as Jasper preached a couple weeks ago, the trenches that we dig. Because the reality from God's word is that there's only two sides. And the determining factor for who belongs on which side is God's own sovereign grace revealed in whether or not we place our faith in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. So God isn't motivated by a desire to see people perish. He's motivated by this love that wants people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And his plan, his purpose that he's brought us together in is to use the church for this message to be spread, to be preached. I want to talk for a second about how that happens. So we were in uh, 2 Corinthians. Let's go to Philippians now. So you're going to go this way in your Bible. Philippians 1.27. Philippians 1.27. Paul's writing to the church in Philippi, which was a different church than the one in Corinth. It seems like maybe they had things a little more mature and stabilized. But if you look in verse um, 27 of Philippians 1, Paul writes this, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. How does the church, even with the disagreements that exist within it, how does the church demonstrate the gospel? I think Philippians 1, 27 and 28 are a key part of this. So you have to live in a way that's worthy of the gospel of Christ. There's an individual responsibility So that whether I come and see you or an absent, so regardless of circumstances, whether Paul is able to be with them or whether Paul has to be far away because he's been put in prison, that Paul would hear that they're what? Look at what it says at the end of verse 27, that they're standing firm in one spirit, that they have one mind, one mindset, one attitude among themselves, striving side by side, that shoulder to shoulder linked together for the faith of the gospel. And then at the start of verse 28, that they're not frightened in anything by their opponents. And then this really powerful thing at the end of verse 28 is this. This, so doing that, living your life in a manner that's worthy to the calling that you've been called, living consistently, and then standing firm in one spirit with one mind altogether striving for the faith of the gospel. That is a clear sign of two things. To people who are outside the gospel, that is, those who don't know Jesus Christ, that's a sign to them of their destruction. But to us, for those who who know and are following Jesus, that's a clear sign to us of our salvation from God. 
So when the church is together and empowered by the Spirit to live together in unity, it accomplishes this awesome thing that the world outside looks at us and says, why are you so different? That's not, that's not, I don't understand how you could possibly do that. Even though you disagree, you're still accomplishing things for the faith of the gospel and the truth of God's word and this God that you say that you serve. How can you do that? And it's because of the work and the power of Jesus. And they look at that and they say, we don't have anything like that. We have no hope. All that we have will lead to our destruction. You have something that leads to hope. And so, though we explicitly preach the gospel, we say words that communicate the truth of who God is and what God has done in Jesus Christ, our lives together as Summit Church and all the churches that are amongst those who call Jesus Christ their Lord, our lives together also preach the gospel to the world. Verse 11 continues with this. Live in peace. Live in peace. And the exhortation here is to be at peace because God has given you peace. So every hurricane season, you get this footage on the Weather Channel or YouTube or whatever your source of video news is. And it's of some guy. And I would say the guy's a clown for doing it. But he's in the, like, the hurricane gear there's a hurricane raging behind him. The trees are like bent over sideways. And he's standing there saying like, yep, there's a hurricane. And it's like, yeah, I get that. And you're a fool for standing there outside in the hurricane. The trees are bent over. The waves are smashing against the shore. And it's not peaceful. And I wonder how often our hearts, maybe our stomachs and our minds look like what's going on in those hurricanes or those tornadoes or those typhoons or those tsunamis that we see video of. But we can be at peace because God has given us peace. Romans 5.1, we know the passage if we've been in the word of God. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What's your heart and mind look like right now in terms of the level of peace that's going on? Because you can live your life and look like pretty chill and pretty cool and pretty calm and cool and collected. And in your head and in your heart, things can be out of control in terms of the manner in which you're thinking. Our lives might look like they're at peace, but our thinking and our hearts can be out of control. And then we see this, also written by Paul to the church in Philippi. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say it, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. God does something to us so that we can be at peace. And when we ask him to do so, he carries that out more and more in our hearts and minds that are guarded by Christ Jesus. So you can be at peace in your thoughts, in your worries, in your anxiety, in the way that your stomach can sometimes feel tied up in knots and your heart can pound really fast 
and you can't go to sleep at night because your head is racing so much with all the things that you're thinking. Amidst those storms, you're called to be at peace. And you can because you've been brought into relationship with the the one true God who can give you peace amidst those circumstances. And he wants to do it. And then having that peace, there's this awesome thing. As the Lord said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. When you've been brought into a position of peace with God, then you can serve to bring that peace to your relationships with others and even others' relationships between themselves. What's your level of peace right now? Because God has given you perfect peace. And what's your relationship like in terms of being a peacemaker? Interacting with others that they would have peace in their lives as well. And then look at the, the end of verse 11 there. And the God of love and peace will be with you. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Now, this is interesting because um, like when there's a so that or an and or statement like that, sometimes it seems like there's this conditional aspect to things. And the question might be, so, all right, I do the rejoicing and building up, the comforting, encouraging, and agreeing, and then God will bless me and be with me? Like I have to do all these things to receive a blessing from God of his presence? And if you've been thinking or, or reading or watching uh, YouTube channels lately in our culture, the question from that might be like, well, where's the grace in that? That's not what grace is. Grace is unmerited favor from God. So if I have to rejoice and build up and encourage and focus on unity and, and living at peace, like, and then I get God's presence, how am I supposed to do that? I guess the one comment I would have to start would be that grace is opposed to earning things from God, not effort for God. That's something that the Christian philosopher Dallas Willard said. Grace is opposed to earning, not effort. So there's things that we have to do. But then I also wanted to think about this. And maybe this example is silly, but it resonated with me. So in 1985, there was a movie that changed my life. It was called The Karate Kid. Um, I'm showing my age. I know some people don't know about Mr. Miyagi and Daniel's son, but it's an amazing movie. And there's this key part of the movie, this, this thread in the, um, like for the middle half of it. And Daniel wants to learn karate. We don't know where Daniel's dad is, but Mr. Miyagi becomes like this father figure for him. And the way that Daniel learns karate is that Mr. Miyagi has him do all this stuff. So it starts with the famous, which one is the first one? Who knows the first thing that Daniel had to do? There's a yellow DeSoto car out there. What did he have to do? Yeah, wax on, wax off. Daniel had to do that, right? And he does this whole lot. I don't know how Mr. Miyagi got all the cars, but um, so maybe he had oil money or something like that. But Mr. Miyagi has all these cars. Daniel washes and waxes all of them. And he had to do it in a specific way. Wax on, wax off. And then what did he have to do next? He had the, the sanding block, sand deck, right? And they had to do that a certain way. And then Mr. Miyagi had him paint fence, not side, side, up, down, paint fence. And then he had to paint the house. And finally, at the outset of painting the house, Daniel flips out. And he's like, Mr. Miyagi, you're just having me do all your chores, old man. Like, what's the big idea? Mr. Miyagi, you can see him like the wise and patient teacher 
Um, Daniel can't lift his arms up because they're so tired. And then he does the thing like this, remember, to do the muscles to warm them up so that he could do something. And then Mr. Mr. Miyagi basically says, wax on, wax off. So Daniel starts doing the thing. All of a sudden, karate guy Mr. Miyagi just throws this flurry of punches at Daniel's son. And he blocks every one of them. Every one of them. And then he's like, sand the floor, boom, boom, blocks all the punches. Paint fence, boom, boom, blocks all these kicks. Paint the house, boom, boom, blocks all these punches. And all this stuff is happening. And Daniel's like, I didn't even realize that this is what I was doing. And that's kind of the same thing that happens in our life when we rejoice and build up and encourage and live in unity at peace. God is doing something in our lives through those actions that builds up something where then we're in the midst of it when we recognize, I learned basically all about who God is and what, it, what God has done by doing these things that I didn't necessarily think I was doing that when it happened, but I look back and realize that God is with me in these things. And that's what spiritual disciplines are. And that's how we realize that it is by rejoicing It is by encouraging others and building them up. It is by focusing focusing on and maintaining the unity that the Holy Spirit has given us. And it is about fighting to live at peace that we truly experience the love and peace that comes from God's presence. Verse 12, this is where it gets interesting. Jason Austin, I'm looking at you because this is just a very interesting part of Verses 12 and 13. What does it say? Greet one another with a holy kiss. I'll tell you this. I really love Jason Austin and appreciate him. If he gave me a holy kiss right now, I would give him a holy roundhouse to the back of his head. I want nothing to do with any man in this church or woman except one named Heather kissing me. I don't want anything to do with that. I don't even want hugs. I know some of you are huggers and maybe we've been up here and praying. Why do I do the side hug that's like this? Because I am socially awkward and it's weird. The fact that I can shake hands with someone is a miracle of God at work because I need like 20 feet of personal space. And I get it that some of you are not wired that way. So you're like, what's this guy's problem that he doesn't want to engage with people and and touch them and experience physical comfort? But the idea here is to love people genuinely because you're genuinely loved. Verses 12 and 13 there. We should have, for the people that are part of God's family, a genuine, special, set-apart affection. Don't worry about the kiss part of it. That's not part of how our culture interacts. Maybe if you go places in Europe or elsewhere, that is part of their culture. And if you're in Christ Jesus and interacting that way, that's fine, because that's how there's that set-apart affection for the body of Christ together. But in your heart, for starters, there needs to be a love that's genuine and authentic and a level of affection for those in the body of Christ that is very, very holy, very set apart, and very special. And then verse 13, all the saints greet you as well. We have to remember about this reciprocal nature of love in the body of Christ And also remember the size of what God is doing in the world. So there's this awesome thing. If you you take right now and then you go back 24 hours and then you think ahead 24 hours, how many people in the world are gathered together in some mode similar to this? People coming together to hear teaching from the word of God, to sing praises to God and to worship God together. 
It's not a small thing that God is doing in the world. I think about all the people in the church I've interacted with in my 44 years. And it wells up inside of me, all this love. And the fact that there were even people this morning who weren't part of our church that were praying for me because they knew I was struggling with something. I think of the fact that I could go to where I have friends uh, who live there. So Florida, I could visit friends and I could go and worship with them. And though maybe the way that they worship or their church is different than this one, there's just something about great, great being together with those who are with us in Christ Jesus and awesome. I think about the times I've had the blessing and privilege uh, for the sake of Summit Church even to go to other places where they worship much differently than we do and still to feel a kinship and together with, togetherness with those people. It has nothing to do with cultures and everything to do with the power of Jesus Christ. And then to think that all those saints, if they have the opportunity, those saints greet me too, and they greet you too. And it's pretty stinking awesome to think about all the things that God is doing in the world through his people. So love genuinely because God has loved you genuinely, but people do as well. You're not in this alone. So when you see people at Summit Church, use discretion in terms of how you interact with those people, but have a set-apart affection, a special way of greeting and interacting with each other and have it be reciprocal. And then we get to the end of what Paul writes the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is the only place by my um, count in scripture where the triune God is represented in a blessing. The Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God that is the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. We have to recognize that what Paul is writing here to the church in Corinth is the ultimate blessing And it's the same blessing with which you are blessed. And that is the presence of God himself. That is what you receive in this blessing. So think about the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the Lord, the King of Kings, Jesus, the Savior, Christ, the Messiah, the promised one of God. The love of God, the Father, who showed his love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. And then the fellowship of the Spirit God brings us together and empowers us to bless other people. I'm not sure how far back it goes, but over the, I'll say the past 18 months, God continues to put something on my heart. And it is the idea of the wilderness. It's a a theme from scripture. So if you look at cover to cover the Bible, the theme of the wilderness is woven throughout. So when we preach Genesis, you saw it, right? When Adam and Eve were put out of the garden, where did they go to? They went to the the wasteland, you could say. They went to somewhere that was not lush, was not vibrant, was not fresh, was hard for things to grow there because the earth had been cursed. And then later in scripture, we see Genesis, what is it? 13, 14, 15, somewhere there. Abraham is called to go, basically, from this place he's familiar with in his homeland, 
And then he's basically called to be a wanderer, be a sojourner. You're going to this place. And then later in scripture, we see Joseph basically was betrayed by his brothers, put into slavery, and then sent to a foreign land, a place that was not his home. And from that, God's people became this real people, but then were put into slavery by the Egyptians. God rescued them out of slavery, but then what happened out of that rescue? Where did they go? They went to the wilderness. And because of the the bitterness and stubbornness of their hearts, they wandered there for probably 40 times longer than they had to. And then kings came. And there was an anointed king, David, who's a type of Christ. When we look at David, he's supposed to point us to Jesus. And he was chased by someone who was already the king and who was jealous of him. So he fled to the wilderness with his friends. And then out of that, there were prophets that God sent to proclaim his word. And they were persecuted for speaking the word of God. They They were minority people. They didn't share the prevailing thoughts of the culture. And God put them out into the wilderness sometimes. And then there was this prophet that came to prepare the way for the Lord named John the Baptist. And where did he do his ministry? In the wilderness. So in my head over the past like two years or 18 months, wilderness, wilderness, wilderness. I've been constantly thinking of that. And it's weird because the world doesn't really want to hear about the wilderness. The world just wants to get out of the wilderness. The world sees joy and wilderness as these two irreconcilable things that cannot coexist together. But then I think of Jesus basically deliberately subjected himself to the worst circumstances. And he chose to go into the wilderness. He wasn't put there. He went there led by the spirit of God. He was tempted by a powerful enemy against him. But he succeeded. Where all the others failed in the wilderness, Jesus succeeded, proving to be basically, he is God's perfect servant. He is the one, the perfect lamb and the perfect king to rule over the hearts of his people. And then I look back through scripture at all these instances of wilderness. And even as Adam and Eve were put out of the garden, there was this truth that God was with them. He clothed them. He gave them stuff from an animal so that they would not feel the shame of nakedness. And as Abraham went, it was clear that God was with him. Even though Joseph was betrayed, all the way it was evident that God was with him. For God's people wandering in the wilderness, God always showed his presence to them in this, that in the daytime there was this cloud that showed that he was with them. And at the nighttime, that was a pillar of fire so that they knew he was with them. It was clear to David the psalmist writing in the wilderness that God was with him. And the prophets were fed food and they were given water in miraculous ways in the wilderness. It's become clear to me that because of the person and work of Jesus, we do have a promise that we're going to be brought out of the wilderness eventually. But that's not right now. While we're in it, we have the promise that God himself is with us. So when we think about this blessing at the end of 2 Corinthians 13, think about that idea of grace, the unlimited and unmerited favor of the Lord Jesus Christ is with you. You could think about that intellectually and kind of be okay with it. 
when you recognize what that means, the favor of God himself in Christ Jesus is with you right now, this very moment. The perfect, unconditional love of the Father is with us, and that's shown to us in Christ. The Holy Spirit, that is God himself, is with us. Not just, not just with us, like among us, but he resides in us by his own choice. And we have fellowship, and we work together, participation with the Holy Spirit. And he's given to us as this, this gift from God for endurance that we can keep going and be encouraged, but also this seal that God guarantees we will get to the out of the wilderness in the end by his own promise. And then we have these various members of the body of Christ. That is all of us together. Each gifted in different ways by the Holy Spirit to help us rejoice. To build us up. To have people that we're to build into. To comfort us and encourage us. And that who we can encourage and comfort. And with whom we all experience God together. Everybody is looking for blessings. And you know what? Because of the grace of God, we find them in this world. But the ultimate blessing that we have is God himself. God is the treasure. God is the one we seek. God is the prize. And God is the joy. And he's always with us. And he can never be taken away from us. I'm gonna pray. Father, thank you that you are indeed with us. We praise you for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the unmerited favor and blessing of God, God's riches at Christ's expense for us. And we praise you for that, that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is with us. We praise you for your love, Heavenly Father. And that it's shown for us in this, that while we were still sinners, that Jesus died for us. Thank you. And I praise you, Father, that, that the work of your son did not make you love us, but you sent your son because you do love us so much. What a great God you are. What a loving God you are. Gracious and compassionate. Slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Thank you that your love is with us. And I praise you for the Holy Spirit and the fellowship that we have with you because of he who resides in us, that is the spirit of Christ, the spirit of God. I praise you for your spirit. I praise you that we do not have to ask or pray to be unified because that is the default position that we have in Christ and that you empower us to live together in harmony with zeal and passion for the truth of your word and service to each other. Thank you that you are indeed with us, God. That no matter what happens to us, though we err and make mistakes, and though we fall into trials of many kinds, some of them that are not consequences at all, but just things that you choose to put us through because of your sovereign wisdom, that in all those things, you indeed are with us. Pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. stand together. We're about to leave this place, but we have an opportunity to respond to God's word and to, I love the part about building one another up 
And I think about relationally, the best moments in my life have always been where I wasn't so needy and I saw myself as having something to give. I know I'm a better husband when I think that way. I know I'm a pretty rotten person when I go around just needing to receive all the time. So that that ultimate blessing of God himself in our hearts, it gives us, we now have something to give. Everywhere we go, we're looking to add, we're looking to multiply, we're looking to build up and encourage, and we're able to roll with the punches when things don't go the way we want. I love this word. I love the kind of church that chews on this word and says, yep, that's who I'm going to be. I'm going to be one who adds the other. So we have his love shed abroad in our hearts, the Bible says. We have this love available to us. So let's go out of this place living, building our life upon the firm foundation of his love, all right?
resource. We can't say that God hasn't given us what we need. The choice is, are we just going to be willing? Are we going to abide in him? Are we going to yield to his spirit? Are we going to yield to those fruits that he's put on the inside of us? And are we going to see ourselves as ambassadors of Christ everywhere we're going, taking ground for the kingdom of God, being the hands and feet of Jesus, building our lives upon the firm foundation of his love? The question is, are you up for that challenge this week? Are you going to go out and do it? Let's do this together. Let's make a difference with his love. Come on, this is what we do. We declare this reality over our lives. Say, You've given us the ability to endure hard things. You've given us a heart to well up and praise you for joyful things. Thank you that you abide near in our hearts. Thank you that there's nowhere we'll go this week that you don't go with us. Thank you that there's nothing we'll endure this week that you won't use for good and for your glory. Thank you for crossing our paths with people who desperately need to know your love. It's going to be messy, we realize. There's going to be times to forgive this week. We're going to be wrong. We're going to be the the object of people's scorn, perhaps. But God, you've put something in us eternal. So please, as you go with us, as we go, Lord, keep this word, keep this topic, keep this message in the forefront of our minds. 
that we would see ourselves on mission everywhere we go this week. I pray for unsaved people to cross our paths. I pray for hurting people to come across our paths. And I pray that we'll recognize when you've brought them to us and we'll, and we'll abide in your spirit and we'll say the words that you give us to say and we'll be the extension of the hands and feet of Jesus that you're going to give us the ability to do. So grow this word in our heart this week. Help us to better understand it and give us opportunities to use it. In your name we pray. Amen. I'm thankful for Bjorn for stepping up to the plate and enduring the things he had to endure. I'm thankful for you all for being here. Thankful for our team. And uh, I want you to go and be blessed knowing that this, that God loves you, we love you, you are loved. Have a great week.